Welcome to the Thurfield Chapel Sermon Podcast. Good morning. Welcome. Rubbish. Good morning. Welcome. It's good. We're alive. Fantastic. Um, it's great to have you with us this morning. My name is Ben. Uh, I am one of the leaders here at Thurfield Chapel. I extend my welcome to you today, whether you're here in person or joining us online. Let's um, begin by praying. Lord, we ask as we turn to this passage that uh, you would open our hearts and our eyes and our minds to you this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would remove anything that's going on, Lord, that we brought in here that's come, come with us, that it would just be a time for us to focus on you and your word and what you have to say. We thank you for the privilege, privilege that it is to do that together. And Lord, if anything is, is said that it's not of you, Lord, that I've just asked that it would be not heard, Lord, or quickly forgotten. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. So uh, a young boy once said to his mum, Mum, I'm nine feet tall. Really? I'm not so sure. How do you know that? Replied the mum. Well, I took off my shoe and measured myself with that. It's the same size as my foot and I am nine feet. Now, that wasn't me, uh, but I can remember thinking something quite similar as a kid and if I were to measure you right now to see how tall you are, you know, what would be an appropriate method? I would suggest a ruler of some kind, which has been correctly configured during production against a set standard. Because when we're measuring things, we need to use the correct measure. If we use the wrong measure, we'll get the wrong result. And as we come to today's passage, we get to see how easy it is for us to see things the wrong way. And we're going to look at how that happens and how easy it is to fall into that trap. And so we begin with a bit of an overlap from from last week, if you were here or listened online, uh, where we heard uh, Jesus went out and called Levi to follow him. And we get now to see how those around at that point reacted to this event. So have your Bibles open if you've got them, or your scripture journals if you've been using those as well. We'll be dipping in and out as we go through. If you also remember, uh, uh, Paul has been reminding us, uh, that's our Paul, Paul Tutton, our pastor, has been reminding us of the theme that we've been exploring as we consider Luke's gospel account of God's promise and purpose being that his blessing will go out and cover the whole of the earth. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus demonstrating his power and his compassion to restore the outcast and how this restoration takes place through the forgiveness of sin. And we linked what took place last week in the healing and forgiveness of the paralyzed man with Levi's calling by seeing that freedom to follow Jesus comes from Jesus' authority to forgive sin. And so it's in this context that we meet Levi, or Matthew, of Matthew's gospel fame, and that Luke presents us with this idea that we have freedom to follow Jesus because of his authority to forgive sin that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. And Luke challenges us to have the same question in our mind as the Pharisees and and indeed Matthew had of having to decide for ourselves who Jesus is. He's shown us very clearly through his authority to forgive sin that he is the son of God. And so now what are we going to do about it? And here we are with looking at Matthew and wondering what he's going to do about it. So who who was Matthew? He was As we've read, uh, a tax collector, so this tells us a fair bit about him. 
uh, tells us that he uh, essentially worked for the occupying Romans. And because of that, he was considered something of a, of a traitor, an outcast indeed, as we've been looking at, by just about everyone that he lived with. So tax collectors and sinners were, were one in the same in the eyes of the Jewish people, their leaders and scholars. And the Roman tax system, the system they had for tax collection, was cleverly crafted to be open to abuse. So long as Rome got the money that it was due, uh, tax collectors were free to keep anything else on top. And there was good money to be made by any financially motivated or morally corrupt individual. And the more motivated by financial reward that they were, the more ostracized and alienated from their own people they became. And they would be more dependent uh, on the protection and the strength of the, the governing Romans. It kind of solidified what was going on for the Romans. And it meant Matthew, if he was willing, as he seems to be, because he's come into this role, if he was happy to forego his social standing, then he would be set up for life. He had swapped his uh, reputation for financial security. He would be disqualified from being a judge or a witness in court, uh, and he would have been excommunicated from the synagogue. And he was seen by all of those around him, as we said, as a sinner. And then comes what for him can only be described as the strangest and most wonderful day of his life. We find Matthew in his tax booth in the midst of the very work that sees him persistently rebuked by the world around him. And as Jesus passes by in front of him, we have to imagine perhaps that maybe Matthew keeps his, his head down. You know, He's bracing himself for yet more of the same abuse that he was so used to receiving from religious people. But instead of more abuse, you hear something that's quite different. A simple, follow me. He'd always been made to think that God hated him for what he had done. But now, as we sang earlier, he's faced with God himself calling him. And this is one of my favorite scenes in the TV series, The Chosen. I know that's not everyone's cup of tea, but... In that, this part, this part really stood out to me, that, that Matthew is presented as something uh, in, in that series as a bit of an oddball whose uh, neurodiversity, if you like, is, is highlighted both as uh, a huge positive for the way that he is so naturally gifted at keeping records, and obviously goes on to, to write his gospel account, as it is for him to, to continue to be labeled something of an outcast even after having been called as a disciple. But what I think they get so right in that is this presentation of him so in bed with the Romans in one minute and then face to face with God himself in the next. And in that moment, he gets up. Crucially, he leaves everything as we read. Now for him to leave this, this role would have meant a huge sacrifice for him. It's, it's unlikely that, that many around him would see him any differently just because he's left his job and decided now to follow Jesus. The fisherman that we heard of a couple of weeks ago, uh, being, also being called, would, would, uh, they would have had the knowledge that if it didn't work out for them, that they could perhaps quite easily return to their day job. Matthew wouldn't have had the same luxury offered by his Roman employers. This was a, a one-way street for him. Though he didn't have to lose everything in a material sense, in fact, we saw that he, he kept his home and uh, his accumulated wealth, at least for, for a period, we see. But his heart was changed 
in an instant. So that the material wealth that he had, he had gained and received only by grace were no longer his in his mind, but they were, they were released from their confinement to be used for God's glory. And so he used what he had to host a big banquet for all of his friends, his other tax collector mates, and uh, a load of other outcasts as well. For Matthew, what he left behind was everything that had ensnared him, and this we would describe as repentance. In that split second of encountering Jesus, he sees Jesus for who he is, and he realizes who he is, a sinner in need of the same freedom and healing that Jesus had been carrying out around him. Matthew knows that he must turn from his old life, empty himself of all that he he knows and all that he has built in his own strength, and instead to follow Christ. So it's in this context that we kind of get to see the Pharisees' reaction. So we're going to have a little look at a few different things. Firstly, we're going to see how the Pharisees react to this. And in verse 30, we read, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the Pharisees come across what's going on at this party of reprobates and They question Jesus' disciples on why it is that they are hanging around with such people who by their standards, who by their measure, are unclean. They're sinners. But the Pharisees' standards on purity and cleanliness that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, by their standards, it would be unthinkable for them to spend time in the presence of such people as tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, or anyone who hadn't received the the same ceremonial cleansing that they had. Yet this is what they see Jesus and his disciples doing. And Jesus replies on behalf of the disciples to make it clear that where else would they be? And this is the first of today's replies where Jesus attempts to, to reset the way in which the Pharisees are measuring what they see before them. They see a group of people reclining at tables so closely as for it to be impossible for their sin not to infect and ruin the others that are present. So the Pharisees, they see an equality among those that are there, that all are sinful by reclining around the same table and sharing the same food together. But Jesus says they see it wrong. They've seen him healing and forgiving uh, the sins of, of those in the area around them, And so where else would you find a doctor now but among the sick? You wouldn't blame a fireman for being at the scene of a fire or a plumber for being at the site of a burst pipe. But there's a a correction here which strikes at the heart of the Pharisees. And so as Jesus points out, he is not calling the righteous but sinners to repentance. He's trying to get them, I think, to see the, the measure by which they see themselves is wrong. That in fact, they are also sinners. He's not looking for those who see themselves as righteous, but looking to be with and call those who will leave everything, who will repent of their sin and follow him in faith. He's calling those who can leave their failures, their achievements, their doubts, everything, and follow him. 
But they struggle, they struggle to see it. They're blinded to what's going on right in front of them. Seeing ourselves for who we are is hard. Seeing our own failures is hard. Even the small things in life. The number of times I've said to my wife, Claire, that I think I am right on something only to find that I am not speaks volumes for my character and my need of Jesus. I can so easily think that I know best. That I know where, something simple like, I know where I left the keys, for example. There's no way that I am stupid enough to have left them in the front door overnight. That's just impossible. There's no way I could have done that. Oh, there they are, in the front door. I find it impossible at times to see that I could be so stupid as to do some of the things that I do. But I do them. And the Pharisees have the same issue here. They can't see that they might be in the same category as the people they're staring at. Reclining at tables, sharing the same food. They're blind to what is there. They're just focused on the wrong details. Caught up in their religiousness. But rather than back down, they continue with their argument. And now they, they change tack a bit. And they try to use another measure to catch Jesus out. It says, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. So they kind of try to suggest that if he is the doctor that he says he is, then he's not a very good one, because his disciples are not showing the signs of spiritual growth that they would expect to see. Because they don't fast or pray. Now, in Old Testament times, there was one fast required, which was just once a year on the Day of Atonement. And by this point in time, the Jewish people were fasting twice a week on a Monday and a Thursday. But Jesus again responds by saying they've got it all wrong. They're focusing on the wrong thing here. They've missed what is happening. They don't understand who he is. They don't understand that he is the Messiah that they've been awaiting that now is not the time to fast, but actually to celebrate. And he does this first by explaining that you, you don't show up at a wedding and expect them to fast. We wouldn't expect that either, would we? I mean, any more than you would uh, show up at a kid's party and expect them to sit in silence eating cabbage. It's just not appropriate for the situation. At parties, it's time to celebrate. For vast quantities of food to be consumed... And at kids' parties, the more sugar you can pump into them and send them back with, the better. It's just the way it's done. Those situations are what you expect to see happening. Sugar at kids' parties, too much food, and dad dancing at weddings. This is how we celebrate. You don't expect to see the opposite. And so it's not appropriate here to be fasting when the bridegroom of Israel has shown up. Yes, there may be a time to fast, he says, when I'm gone. But right now, you're missing the point. You're trying to impose a way of doing things which simply misses the mark. If we remember, we want to flick back to chapter 4, when Jesus stood in his father's house and, and read from the scriptures that he's been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That sounds like a celebration to me. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what he said was coming. And it will be a celebration. The long-awaited bridegroom of Israel has come. 
And with it, everything changes. And so the systems that you guys have have in place, he says, the things that you think are right, well, they no longer fit. The kingdom has come in me, in my arrival, says Jesus. And you can't can't mix and match this old stuff, uh, so this new stuff with the old stuff. You can't have a bit of the old way of doing things. This is all very new. You can't just patch on a bit of this new age of the kingdom to the old system you had any more than you can patch an old coat with a bit of cloth from a new coat. You're going to make a mess of both of them. The old coat will have an odd-looking new bit in the middle, which doesn't match, and the new one has a great big hole missing. And you're not going to be able to put uh, new wine into old wineskins either, he says. These, uh, these containers for wine were made of animal skins and sewn together. Uh, to form these, these containers for wine. and At first, they'd be elastic, and they'd swell quite easily with the liquid that they contain, as the skin was fresh. But when they were old, and after much use, they would split and burst. And so Jesus, and the kingdom that he is restoring us to, as it arrives, it, it blasts away the old way of doing things. And the wineskins just cannot contain the power of the blessing the kingdom of Christ brings. So the Pharisees, they have an issue here, and it's actually the same one that we have. They've used the wrong measure, just like the kid who thinks he's nine feet tall. They're trying to contain God within the old systems and structures for their own benefit, and he just doesn't fit. They must either revise their view of themselves, their structures, their heart, everything, Or they can continue to throw up the barriers. They can try and find a way to remove their problem, perhaps, and protect their own self-importance. This is the choice that they're facing. And we, too, I think, need to heed that same warning. Not to try to limit our view of God. We can do this in in many ways, I think. We can limit uh, our view of God by having an inflated view of ourselves and our own importance or self-righteousness and we can sit here today and we can look at the Pharisees and think man how are they so blind as to what was in front of them but we know that we have the same faults perhaps we might look at others and think well they don't come to church or when they do they don't stand up during the songs or they don't raise their hands or they do raise their hands or they close their eyes or don't open their eyes when they pray or Maybe they don't come to our home group, or they don't come to our events, or our meetings. Or they don't quite live up to the measures of godliness that we expect. Maybe they swear, or they speak in a way which doesn't match the the things that we think. Or they have an opinion on a passage which we disagree with. Or they hang around with people who we don't like the look of, or we don't even like the look of them, maybe. How they dress, how they act, how they style themselves, how they how they put themselves out in front of people. It could be a myriad of things that we see, that we set as marks of godliness, or we think doesn't match up with our view of what it looks like to follow Jesus, just like the Pharisees did. So easily done. Or maybe we go to the other end of the spectrum, as we were looking at a bit last week. We've got the wrong measure of God's forgiveness for ourselves. 
And we see ourselves as, as useless or of no worth because we're measuring ourselves against others instead of looking to Christ. And then we hide away and uh, we think we're not worthy because we are so broken. So we can't possibly come to church or we can't read our Bibles or pray because we're in this state of unworthiness. Or maybe we beat ourselves up so much about our failings that we fail to model the joy and the freedom that Christ, by his grace, has given us. I think this is a big one for me of late. I far too easily can, can slip into the gutter of thoughts of how I am perceived by others around me. In my position as a leader at work, I can too easily become anxious about what both those uh, I lead in my team are thinking as well as those who employ me think. And I end up kind of stuck in this state between the two where whirlpools of negativity can lead to dark, depressed thoughts about what it is that I'm doing. even sounds so ridiculous to be saying it to you now, but that's, that's, where, I, that's where I sometimes end up. And the somewhat dangerous thought that I can then have in that situation is to try to think, well, okay, how does God see me though? Which I think is very different to how I see myself, because I know he loves me, but it becomes then a bit about me. Better than doing that is not to try to fix it with thoughts of how God sees me and answering it in the way that the world would, you know, in, in I am worthy in some way. Instead, it's to see God for who he is and to look up. And as we look at him, just as, as Matthew did, he removes our self-righteousness He removes our self-deprecation. And we, in fact, stop measuring ourselves because there is, there is no measure by which we can stand. There is only grace. And we need a correct view of God in that moment. I think this diagram shows something of that. I've kind of interpreted it from a conversation that I had with my boss on Teams the other day as we were discussing uh, this passage. He's a, a, an elder over at uh, Grace Church in Cambridge, And uh, it was very helpful on Thursday, just before I did my final preparation on Friday. Um, essentially, we can, uh, we can so easily think that if we perform for God, if we do the things that he likes or wants, then he will respond to us and his blessing will then kind of flow down to us. And so we work hard at trying to fix things for ourselves and our own strength. We try to stop swearing. We try to stop judging others, trying to stop hating ourselves, trying to stop finding faults in other people, trying to be a better person or a Christian. And if we do that, if we do those things, then God will make things right in our lives. And the world kind of tells us that this is how we do it, that the strength you need is within you. In the new kingdom that has come, everything that we know is turned upside down, and so God says the opposite. God sent, sent Jesus down, bringing grace, bringing forgiveness, Resetting the measure that we so easily enforce. And our lives are changed by what he has done. And then we respond to that with praise, with obedience and with gratitude for what he's done. And I think we're so infected with the effects of sin uh, and with how the world tells us to be that we, we are so easily blinded to the truth. And these are challenging times indeed as we've Seen this week with the Church of England debate on blessing same-sex relationships. I'm not going to go into that, but I think it has very clearly displayed the dangers which exist when we take our eyes off God and instead measure things by our own standards. 
as Benjamin John at the C of E Synod debate said this week, why make ourselves like the world when we have the one thing the world needs? And I think another thing that we might try to measure is success in our lives. The Pharisees, as we saw, tried to suggest that praying and fasting is a measure of success. So how do we define success? Whether that's in a work context, uh, maybe we, or chasing wealth, or maybe even just that next level of comfort, you know. If I can just make X, then I'll have what I need. Or maybe we see success in the form of how our children grow up and what they do. We can far too easily idolize our children, put them on pedestals for all to see what a good job we've done. We can push them to hit certain marks and not stop until they meet the goals or the measure that is in our minds for them to achieve. Or we can see success in sporting form, perhaps. Nothing wrong with enjoying a good game of football, darts or table tennis or any other randomly selected sports which come to mind. Whether we're playing or or following it, it can become all-encompassing. Seeking that next sort of dopamine hit that comes from winning And we can become tricked into thinking that there's always more to come. That the next win which will set us on a path of happiness is is not that far away. And I think we too need to be careful about measuring success as a church and as church leaders too. That we don't try to impose that same measurement of spiritual growth that the Pharisees do. And think that it's about seeing our own standards met in some way. That we don't judge those who come into our midst, but we recline at the same table and get to know them. That we don't hang on to the traditions or things which we create for ourselves because maybe they're giving us a position of power or glory or importance. But instead to fully submit ourselves to God. We should be careful that we don't look to numbers of those present or those converted or in fact actually to count anything. Just to continually remember that in the kingdom of God, it is grace we have received and to only ever seek to glorify him. Please do pray for us that that we remain humble and that we lead only by ever looking to the example of our servant king. And now with all these examples, whether it's work or sport, church, if we make these things measures of success, where or to what do we turn and what do we do when they fail? Where do we turn when we, when we miss the mark, when we don't succeed? When our team loses, when our children don't turn out the way, the way we define they would in our minds, when we're made redundant at work or a project we were tasked with delivering runs over budget. Because if we base our success on the things of this world, we will fail. And the answer is to To not look to ourselves, but to Christ. To his arrival with the good news of the kingdom, which is upside down to what the world says, but which on closer inspection isn't really upside down at all. It's just how it was always meant to be. And what does this look like? I think we're given a a bit of a clue in the final verse of this passage as as to how to achieve, how this is done. Verse 39 says... And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For they say, the old is better. We can, if we're 
not careful, be like the people that Jesus is describing here. We might find that we let Jesus in, but only for a specific purpose. We say, okay, God, come in. Please fix up this, this part of my life over here. I've got this issue, and I, I really need you to sort it out for me. Or I just need some forgiveness for this thing, this issue, this, this sin that I keep on repeating. And if we can, maybe if we can get that sorted, I think, I think I'll be okay. And in those cases, you know, we're trying to fit God into our lives. Sticking with what we know to be safe and good and missing the blessing of the new wine. My life is okay, you know, I just need this bit of Jesus over here and maybe a little bit over there, but I don't want don't want all the other stuff. You know, that's all a bit too much for me. The old is better. We try to fit him in, and we want him, but we want him to be our eternal insurance policy. But Jesus is like, no. Leave everything. Turn around. I'm the king of this kingdom. If you get me, you'll walk away from those other kingdoms and follow me. C.S. Lewis famously put it like this. This would be very familiar to several of you, I'm sure. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing over here putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Let's not make the mistake of only allowing him to fix the drains or the leaky roof, but be prepared to leave everything which holds us back from knowing and enjoying the glorious gifts of his grace. To let him smash down the walls we so desperately want to hold on to and control. And to hand it all to him. And so our challenge then I think is not to have the wrong measure of God. But to be consumed by that which is unmeasurable. Not to create our own metrics whereby we either measure uh, self-worth against others. Or whereby we miss just how self-righteous we've become but instead to look up to Christ, to welcome him in celebration as he brings grace and forgiveness and then respond in praise with obedience and in gratitude. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed ask that you would help us, Lord, because we need your help. To look up, Lord, to, to stop looking around us at the world, what it says, what we say, but to look to you and your word, who you are. And Lord, to, to see that grace and that forgiveness for what it is, as we said earlier, Lord, amazing. And that doesn't even begin to encompass what it truly is. We thank you, Lord, that that, that is how you've planned it to be. You've poured out this this grace on us like this 
like getting a shower from Niagara Falls, and that's not even, not even close, Lord. It's grace that pours out on us, Lord. We thank you. And as we come to your table in a, in a short moment, Lord, as we remember this grace that you poured out, we ask that you would help us to, to live in the knowledge of that, Lord, that you would help us not to put up those walls or hold on to those walls that you seek to knock down. You would indeed come and dwell in our lives and dwell in all of it, not just the part that we say that you, you can have, Lord, how wrong we have that, but that you would indeed dwell in all of our lives. Lord, we hand it all to you this morning. And I ask that we would be consumed by your grace. And we thank you, Lord, this morning as we seek to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or would like prayer relating to anything you've just heard, then please do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. You can do so by emailing us using hello at thurfieldchapel.org or fill in the contact form on our website or send us a message on social media. Thank you again. Please do join us next week online or in Thurfield itself at one of our services or events. We would be delighted to welcome you. God bless.